0: So this month, actually, our theme for this month has been crazy little thing called church. We've tended not to say that every Sunday, but that's what our theme's been. And this this uh, morning, we're looking at the fifth of our five eyes, or one of our five eyes, which is interdependence, and they're all on the wheel that you've got, which we're going to be using a little bit uh, later in the service. Um, a, a very famous Archbishop of Canterbury, I say that because you've probably never heard of him, it was called William Temple. Uh, uh, William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the Second World War, and William Temple said this. He said, the church is the only club on earth that exists for the benefit of everyone who's not a member of it. Most clubs, all clubs, exist for the benefit of the members. Golf clubs exist for the benefit of the members. Gym clubs exist for the benefit of the members. Running clubs, knitting clubs, crochet clubs, on gardening clubs, on and on. And what they hope to do is attract new members to keep their club going, to keep things the way they are, to keep the subs coming in. But the church, says William Temple, doesn't exist for that at all. It exists for the benefit of everyone who's not part of it. And perhaps never will be part of it. And what William Temple, I'm sure, was thinking about was what Jesus said, that the church is called to be salt and light. And Kat read to us those fantastic words from Jesus where Peter, one of Jesus' followers, says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The belief that what I have to bring is transformational to society. So here we are we're in 2017. We pick up the newspaper every day or go online or switch on Radio 4 or whatever it might be. And as someone was saying to me in just this very place yesterday, and my own wife was talking to me about this uh, through this week, listening to Radio 4 in the morning is a thoroughly, thoroughly depressing experience. It just is. It's the most miserable way you can start any day. As John Humphreys and friends, uh, bang on six o'clock, begin to download this problem and that problem and this is breaking down and that's breaking down and the world doesn't work and no one likes each other and Donald Trump's going to blow us all to smithereens by the end of the week, etc., etc., etc. But what that all tells us, whatever your news source is that the role of the church isn't some kind of anachronistic thing that belongs back in the 1500s. The role of the church is of fundamental importance to society today. Tragically, looking at this label food bank, tragically, we live in a society in London, one of the wealthiest, probably the most cosmopolitan city on earth. And there is a huge rise in the use of food banks. The rise in the use of our food bank from this time last year to this time this year is astronomical. Why is that? I was talking with somebody just um, the other day through the uh, the coffee house who'd come in to see us. And uh, I caught myself saying to him, and our food bank's going really well. And at the moment those words, that, that phrase left my mouth, I felt ashamed. How can a food bank be going well? It's only going well if it doesn't exist. It's only going well if there's no need for it. It's only going well if everyone in this city is enfranchised. We talked about that the other week when we talked about harvest. Remember, for those of you well, for those of you who weren't here, we said harvest isn't some private little ceremony where you can bounce up and down and give praise to God that he put food on your table. If you look at harvest in the context of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible in which it's written, it's a cry and a call for justice. You can harvest your crop but leave a band around the edge. You can harvest your crop but don't go over it a second time. You can harvest your crop but invite those who have nothing, especially the widows and the orphans and especially the refugees those who find themselves without land, onto your lands to enjoy your harvest. Anything else is a denial of what harvest is about. It's a denial of justice. So the role of the church, if you just take food banks as a tiny example, is huge. Because it remains true today, it is the church that runs food banks. You'd never believe that, would you? By the way, listening to Radio 4 in the morning as I do to get depressed at 6 o'clock. You never believe that all food banks in this country are run by the church. As you get towards the tail end, another little uh, little item about how the church is in recession and, you know, disappearing off the face of the planet. You never link the big stories and the talks about food banks to the fact that it's a 100% church-driven, church-fueled, church-volunteered initiative. So... We need to take a look at what church is as we move into the future. Now, I've made some videos. Well, actually, when I say I've made some videos, that's a lie. I've made one video. But over the next two years, I'm going to make 95 videos. So there's only 94 to go. And I made this video on our farm on Friday uh, with the help of Dan, uh, my son, And um, this Tuesday, as I say on the front of the news sheet, or it says on the front of the news sheet, this Tuesday is not only Halloween, this Tuesday, October the 31st, is the 500th anniversary exactly to the day of when Martin Luther, the person who acted as the catalyst for the beginning of the Reformation, nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg his 95 theses, or 95 problems he had with the way the church was, or 95 questions he had uh, with uh, uh, addressed to the authorities about the way the church should be. Uh, Martin Luther realized the kind of church they had wasn't the kind of church they needed. And so he realized that something ought to happen about it. And if you read Martin Luther's life history, which is probably a bridge too far, you'll discover that he was an agitator for change for a long time. And in the end, he got so fed up at the lack of justice, the poor were being robbed in in Germany uh, then too. We're robbing the poor and leaving out the poor, as you know, in different ways now. But back then, the way that the church did it was to... um is to insist on indulgences, you know that word, you could, you could buy an indulgence, which was really a certificate. You know, you rocked up at the church, the priest kind of um, prayed for you after you'd given him some money, and at the end he gave you a certificate which proved that either you or one of your relatives, depending on where you wanted to use this token, this certificate, was going to get some time off purgatory. The more you paid, the better it got. So the rich got off purgatory and the poor didn't. But the poor, it was a bit like the national lottery in instant cards now. The instant card is an awful thing, isn't it? Because it holds out that little bit of hope to a family that can't feed themselves. And the mum goes in and she sees that card and she thinks, if I invest this little bit of money, perhaps... Our circumstances can be changed. But all it actually means is at the end of the month, she can't afford a pair of shoes for her child. It's gone. So the lottery, instance, indulgences, certificates from the, from the, uh, the Catholic Church, we're all, it's all the same thing. The age-old exploitation of the poor by the rich, by the privileged and the enfranchised, and the entitled by those who get left out. So what Martin Luther did is he stood up and he nailed these 95 questions about the corruption of the church, not just to do with indulgences, but a ton of other things. Lots of questions to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. The reason he did that was because... um, well, it was because the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, it was a, it was a um, university town. The door of the cathedral was the place you stuck notices if you were a university professor. You know, it was like a giant notice board. So he banged up these things on the notice board. We don't actually know that he did it. But what we do know is he posted his 95 thesis to his local bishop that same day. And that, in the end, acted as the catalyst to the Reformation. So it struck me. They here we are, and we ought to post up 95 more questions in honour of what Martin Luther did. 95 questions for today. 95 questions to address to our globalized society. 95 questions not to post to the local bishop, but to post to the World Wide Web, the internet. And so I um, decided that, you know, I, what do I know? Do, you know? do I know all of the answers? I hardly know any of the answers Do I know all of the questions? I certainly don't know all the questions, but we ought to post some questions and get some debate going. And so once a week, on Tuesdays, I'm gonna post to the Wild uh, wild West. To the, (laughs) it's a bit like that as well, isn't it? Hey, everything, what goes around comes around. Um, I'm gonna post to uh, the web these videos, and this, actually, I'm gonna play you now is the first. I'd like you to do something if you think they're worth posting. Each is a statement. They're going to get more and more um, particular. This is just a general introduction and some questions on the end for people to talk about as individuals or as small groups or as churches around the world. Loads of churches, you know, around the world get the videos or the um, recordings of our our sermons, which is rather terrifying. I was talking to um, some guys in Australia um, last week who their whole church is just listening to the uh, recordings of our, they sing some songs, then they listen to the recordings of our sermons, and then then they um, debate them. I was talking to a church in LA recently that did exactly the same. So here is this video, which if you like, I'd like you to post, but here it is. It saves me talking. Do you know the trouble with getting old as I am? You know, you stand up to talk for two minutes and it takes 10 minutes. So this is a video And by showing you the video, it gets it across more succinctly. It lasts a little over five minutes. Welcome to Chalk Talk. This is the first of a series of short videos that's going to explore questions around our model of church and ask, is it fit for the 21st century? And if not, what do we need to change? It was exactly 500 years ago that Martin Luther, the German priest and scholar, nailed his 95 theses or questions or complaints to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and his action kick-started what we call the Reformation, the birth of Protestant churches as they broke away from Catholicism. Luther complained about indulgences, they were certificates that priests issued for money so that people or their relatives could get time off purgatory but he was actually complaining about much more. For him, the shape of the established church and its relationship with the state just didn't fit with the needs of the world in which he was called to live and serve. His world had been changing and changing fast. So we're gonna take a very quick look at three trends and two people that influenced Luther and helped create the environment in which he thought and worked and the necessity for change. The first is the Renaissance. That's the whole period of European development between the 14th and 17th century. It's kind of regarded as the cultural bridge between the old Middle Ages and modern history and modern thinking. By the 16th century, in other words by the time Luther was alive, its influence was felt right across Western Europe in literature, philosophy, art, music, politics, science and of course religion. It was a subtle shift that took place about the way that intellectuals approached their whole way of thinking. It was a new quest for learning. And as part of it, many old ancient Greek texts, in fact, the New Testament itself, were brought back from the East, from Byzantium, Constantinople, to Western Europe. And for the first time in about a 1,000 years, Western scholars engaged in study with these original texts. All this helped pave the way Luther and the Reformation. The second influence was the development of banking as it spread from northern Italy right across Western Europe during the 15th and 16th centuries. That was because subsistence living was disappearing and now you could be independently wealthy and therefore independent. The third influence was the invention of the printing press in around 1440. By 1500, printing presses were in operation across Western Europe. It was the social media of the day. Information was available to the many, if not to the masses, because it was still very expensive for the first time. Together, these three great influences shaped the environment into which Luther was thinking and working. They created a new sense of autonomy, a new sense of individualism, and therefore the soil for independent thinking, a new kind of world. There were also two people, contemporaries of Luther, that perhaps influenced his thinking more than anyone else. The first of these was Machiavelli, the Italian politician and philosopher and writer, who's often been called the father of modern political science. In 1513, just five years before Luther nailed his thesis to the door of that church, Machiavelli wrote The Prince. So subversive was this book that it wasn't actually published widely until 1532, five years after he died. But a private version appears to have been around, and perhaps Luther got to read it whether or not he actually read it, we know that he was influenced by Machiavelli's thought which was all about autonomy and independence. One man that we know that Luther actually knew and corresponded with was Erasmus and he's the second thinker that influenced Luther. He was a Dutch renaissance thinker, a Catholic priest and a theologian and he was highly critical of the church and its doctrines. Amongst many other books he translated the New Testament from Greek and also a Latin version and his thinking and other books raised loads of questions about the church's practice. It influenced Luther's thought. But while Erasmus was critical of the abuses, many of them within Catholicism, and he called for reform, he remained until his dying day a loyal member of that church, committed to reforming Catholicism and its clerical abuses from inside. Luther had huge admiration for him and for his superior learning, but he was annoyed by the fact that Erasmus, as Luther saw it, wouldn't stand up and be counted for change. So it was that Martin Luther came to nail his 95 theses or points of debate to the door of that church in Wittenberg and it became the catalyst for what we call the Reformation. Of course, Luther got lots right and he got lots wrong and John Calvin and many others debated his thinking over the years and centuries to come. But he was a huge influence on the whole church both the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation within Catholicism. So today, in the early years of the 21st century, it seems clear to me that once more, the shape of the established Church, the way we do things, no longer fits the needs of our world, the world in which we're called to live and serve. We live in a world that's globally connected we can get all sorts of worldviews instantly on our phone while the preachers preaching we're checking on our smartphones to see whether she or he is right or wrong we live in an age that's information rich we live in an age that's suspicious of institutions we don't trust them we trust our friends hierarchy is disappearing or we don't believe in it and we don't want it we Want to be more organic than that. When I was a kid, my vicar used to stand in his pulpit and tell us what was right and wrong and how to understand the Bible. We don't go to church for information, if we go at all, anymore. We go for community because that's what we crave. Community, openness, transparency, honesty, places where we can debate and question and be honest about our doubts. So, what kind of church do we need for the 21st century? Is it time for a new reformation? What do you think? I'll see you next week. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, yeah, you don't have to. That's very kind of me. You don't have to clap. But the, um, the, the point is this. That's the debate we want to start. What kind of church do we need? What should the church look like? The church, of course, across the world, not just in the UK or in Europe is in sharp decline the church is in sharpest decline in the United States and that's not because of Donald Trump um, the church has been in sharp decline in the United States for the last decade decade and a half churches empty and fast we still think of mega churches, but the mega churches, you know disguise the fact that an old style of Christianity isn't working and I think that's what William Temple was talking about We have to re-evaluate what we're about and how we do things. Now, we're constantly attempting to do that here, aren't we? All of us, working together as a team. We are the church. What's really interesting is that Martin Luther's big thrust, as I hope you picked up, towards reforming the church was a thrust towards independence. Before the invention of the printing press, etc., Machiavelli talked about autonomy Everybody believed in this concept of subsistence to each other. In other words, you lived in a village and you grew potatoes and your mate grew onions and someone grew the turnips and someone had the sheep, and you were all dependent on one another. You didn't even use money. You just traded your turnips for his potatoes, for his cabbages, for his Brussels sprouts. That's how life worked. But the rise of the banking houses first of all in Italy, and then across Europe, Um, and the invention or the use of money, money at coins had been used of course in ancient Egypt and Greece, et cetera, et cetera, by the Romans, but the use of money instead of swapping produce allowed some people to become more wealthy than others because let's face it, if you're growing potatoes, everybody wanted one, but there's a lot of people that don't like Brussels sprouts. So the guy who's growing the Brussels sprouts, he's poorer than the guy with the potatoes. And we developed a society that has reached its heights, where, as you know, the top 10 uh, wealthy billionaires in the world own more than the next 50%. Incredible, isn't it? So we've ended up with this disparity. And we've ended up now with endless social media. Whereas books, as I said in the video, video, they were only just invented and though they'd spread, they were still the possession of the middle classes and very expensive. But now social media is everywhere and everyone has access to information. So you don't go to church anymore for information. It's funny, isn't it? If you look at our churches, remember even this church here, you know, when I first came, as some of you remember, had a big pulpit just about there you know, where just in front of the doors where a, and a giant pulpit for one person to stand in and look down on everyone. And pulpits around the country, why were they there? Because it, and why did ministers wear gowns, academic gowns? Because they were the dispensers of wisdom from the height of their pulpit. A lecture hall, that's what a church looked like. But, of course, no one's interested in that anymore because all of this is readily accessible. What people crave is not independence. The Catholic Church didn't give people independence. Luther did. He said, by faith alone, you are saved. Regardless of what the church thinks, it's about you and God. That's it. Do you see how his message fitted in a sociological way with where society was? But now we've all learned that whatever we know we're poor if we're not connected. Interdependence is what we crave. Interdependence is what we need. And so we have to find ways of reinventing the church. I don't know if you know this, and there's no um, great applause in it for ourselves, but um, people travel from around, but actually travel from around the world to come and they look around the farm and they look around the schools and they look around the, the church and they and they get take stuff away that's why people download our recordings because they're searching for different ways of being church we know we're searching too we're searching too but we do know this don't we that the gospel of jesus is good news socially as well as spiritually and economically and emotionally and we do know this that the circle of inclusion is the inclusion of everybody people sh- are not to be left out one i may have uh, shown you this before Helmut tilica what a great name that is he's one of my favorite kind of theologians he was a contemporary of, um, of Barth and all of those uh german theologian and and um, Helmut Tealicker, his big thing was about communication, and this is what he said. The gospel must constantly be forwarded to a new address because the recipient is repeatedly moving. If the basic questions of life have shifted, then we must redirect the message of the gospel. It's not to reinvent the gospel, it's to redirect it. It's to understand it in more depth so, it's, so the depth of its content can be transmitted, communicated, shared with others. So that's what we're about in Waterloo. That's what interdependence is about. That is what, over coffee, finding out about how you can get involved uh, um, in is all about. Christianity isn't a spectator sport. It's not a club for those who already belong. It's about how I can serve and give my life. But as we know, in serving, we find ourselves, which is one of those Ironic truths, isn't it? People cling to their own independence, not realizing that only as they let go of it do they actually find the richness and depth of what it is to be human and be alive. So volunteering uh, to get involved with the farm, so downloading the global app, um, so um, getting involved in those things that Roddy talked about or Nathan talked about to do with the food bank, the fantastic work that Rebecca does now, leading the food bank and driving it forward and the Debt Advice Centre. We need so many poor people to help with debt advice. You know about, if you know about managing money, then give an hour every two weeks of your time, just an hour every two weeks of your time to lift someone from slavery and misery the ways that you can help here because you know if a parent comes along here some of you are parents if you're going to spend the whole morning just trying to keep hold of your toddler what's the point in being here we have to make this experience rich for everyone and and what we're doing isn't just nursing toddlers and children whilst we're in here that that's going on there is as rich and deep and meaningful a part of church and learning and growing as anything else and then there are all the gaps that we know in terms of what we are as a church. We're not sycophantic or triumphalistic. We simply know this, that Jesus calls us to bring this message to everyone. And so this is what Jesus said. Je- I put in yellow just to you know, make it that these are the three points of the passage, I think. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Simon Peter, after others had responded, said, you are the Messiah, that means the liberator, the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, on this rock will I build my church. That's it. Jesus says nothing, actually, Jesus only ever mentioned the word church twice. He mentioned it here in two chapters later. Jesus says nothing about comfortable chairs, nothing about bands, nothing about liturgies, nothing about... um, PowerPoint and projection, nothing about sound systems. He says nothing about any of the stuff that's grown up around what we do. That's not to dismiss it, but it's all con- contextual, isn't it? This is, has been our way of forwarding the gospel to a new address. We get comfortable seats instead of the hard pews that we used to have we get PowerPoint instead of books we we think about kids' work we think about a food bank etc but it 's all contextual the question is Jesus said look i 'm the liberator i 'm the one who's come to liberate everyone so they can be fully human and Peter gets it and Jesus says that 's the rock that 's the only rock on this I 'll build my church." Everything else is just ways of doing it. So what ways should we be doing it in the future? What I've learned through my years of being a Christian is this. I'll read you just one, um, two verses actually, from Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 11. I'll probably make one of those little um, video casts about this as I go. But Peter has just encountered an Italian centurion. You know, he's like not a Jew because he's Italian. And his name's Cornelius. And uh, he's not allowed to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a part of... Because Christianity is part of Judaism then. He just can't be one because he's an Italian and you have to be Jewish to get in. And uh, the the gospel is good news for everyone, but only if you're a Jew. You know, it's good news for the whole world but it done half help to be Jewish to start with. And, and the Jews had a way, and the church, the early church, had a way of making a person a Jew. That's what the phrase God-fearer means. You had to go on this kind of industrial discipleship course that lasted for about five years, and in the end, if you plopped out the other end, complete, you could be a Jew, a proselyte. That's what the word meant, proselyte, Someone who wasn't a Jew who'd become a Jew, and then you were in. Trouble was Cornelius wasn't any of that stuff and and what happens is Peter lets him into the church and baptizes him. Wow and that's all in chapter 9 and 10 and then Peter gets back to Jerusalem full of this. He's found someone who's not a Jew and he's realized they're filled with God's spirit and so he baptizes this person and all their family there's an interesting thing, isn't it? All the family in one go. And he gets back to Jerusalem to tell the excited church in Jerusalem what he's doing. And this is what it says. Chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter got back to Jerusalem, the circumcised brothers criticized him and said, you went to the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with him. The pioneer always gets carpeted back at base. The pioneer is always in trouble from the institution. The pioneer, instead of being applauded, actually gets run into the ground, often excommunicated, thrown out. But Peter understands this, though, as we learn later from his arguments with Paul, he doesn't get it totally. He doesn't totally know what it means. He knows this, that you find God's in the future, not the past. And that's what I want to leave you with. We all think, don't we, that being faithful is being traditional. We all think that you find God back in the past. If only we could get back to the 1980s. If only we could get back, I've had the conversation with some of you here, to sing him from books instead of this. If only we could get back to those wonderful golden days. If only we could get back to the way things were. But you see, it's deeper than that. We think that you find God through being faithful to the way we always used to do things. If we can be faithful to the way it was, that is being biblical. Being traditional is equated with being faithful and biblical but here's the truth According to the New Testament, you never find God in the past, you find God in the future. God is always yanking us in tomorrow. He's not dragging us back to yesterday. He's yanking us into tomorrow and he's asking us questions that we struggle to answer because he needs a church that's fit for tomorrow, not yesterday. 1960 isn't coming back again, nor 70 or whatever your great height was. 1990, the millennium's not coming again. 2000. 10 isn't coming back again, but 2020 and 30 and 40 are on their way. And as individuals and as a church, through our interdependence and reliance on one another's skills and insights, we need to get ready for that. And that's what Peter was doing, and that's why he got into trouble. But just as sure as the church has always, there's the funny thing. They carpeted Peter, but they were dependent on what he did. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been here today. The church is always dependent on the pioneer, though it carpets the pioneer. God isn't found in the past. He worked in the past. God will be greeted by us in the future. And our job is to journey there with him. What does this mean for you? Well, it must mean something personally. Well, it has to, doesn't it? You, like me, we can choose to turn our back on that and say, hey, well, I'm sticking where I am. We just become a relic of history. We can personally, individually make that choice. Or as a church, we can choose to say, you know, this is how we do our services, and this is when we meet, and these are the clubs we run, and this is the way we arrange things, and this is how our leadership runs, and this is what our band looks like, and this is the kind of music we sing. And you can look at other churches that stopped off at different points of history and kind of settled for this is as far as we go. And they all become an anachronism. We need to move on constantly. I need to move on. I need to move on. I need to be challenged deeply by Christ every day about the kind of bloke I am, the kind of leader I am, the kind of church we are. But so do you. So do you. This is who we are. We will find God's in the future as he pulls us into onto new things, new horizons, new scenes that we've not encountered yet. That is what independence is about. This crazy little thing called church. And so my question to you is this, are you up for it? Can we journey together? Will we take this wondrous adventure together? into the future, interdependent with one another. Thank you.